I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast. Produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Today's guest is an example to those of us who feel we ought to change with the times, but might not feel we are fully equipped to do it. Matthew Wilson is the group CEO of Brit and is a Lloyds man through and through. He spent most of his career going about his business in the same analogue way that most of us are familiar with. Yet he has embarked on a transformation programme at Brit to overhaul everything it does in readiness for a digital future. A three-year migration of systems to the cloud is just coming to fruition. And last year's pioneering launch of Key, Brit's algorithmically driven follow syndicate, is still being digested by the market. In this podcast, we focus on how Brit and Lloyds can embrace a digital future and reap expense savings, productivity gains, and huge business benefits if it can turn its analog platform into a digital one. Whilst the technical challenges are never to be underestimated, this discussion shows that the greatest hurdles are far more likely to be self-imposed cultural ones. From this encounter, it becomes clear that only until we learn to accept change can we innovate successfully. I would venture that if Matthew can do it, so can the rest of the market. So I highly recommend this one to anyone looking for pointers on where to start and how to begin embracing the insurance market of the future. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA Claim Service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day. Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. Matthew, thank you so much for breaking away from your busy schedule to speak to the Voice of Insurance. I want you to lay out to me What's your vision for Brit's development over the next five years? Well, thank you, Mark. First of all, thank you for having me on uh, your amazing podcast. I think one of the highlights of one of the positive things about uh, lockdown has been the ability to uh, actually reach more people and actually have more conversations in our industry, which is a great thing. So uh, thank you for having me here. Well, I think it's a really exciting time for Brit's development. In our 22-year history, I think Brit's probably been seen as a bit of a sleeping giant. Over the last few years, I think you could now say that we've uh, truly awakened. We've spent the last decade really on underwriting quality, underwriting outperformance. That's what we've drummed into our people, is that we don't want to be the biggest, but we do want to be the best. And that's really been our mantra 
over the last five years. So looking forward to the next five years, though, my view of what Brit will be is digital data-led business. That's what we want for it. And I really want Brit to become synonymous with digital innovation. So we started that journey about three years ago and putting the foundations in place. First place we started was actually moving our entire IT uh, infrastructure over to the cloud. That's been a three-year process, which we actually uh, incidentally finished this month. So we actually complete that in March and actually then start to turn off all of our uh, on-prem servers. And then we'll be a fully cloud-based business uh, from March. Then really, it was about innovation and innovative thinking, which is an incredibly difficult thing to get into an organization. So I can sort of come in one day and ask everyone to be innovative, but you realize that that just because you want it so doesn't make it so. So what we really did was start a process of education around innovation, starting with our board and our executive. We actually took nearly 200 people through an innovation course and a creative thinking course to actually sort of just set the ground rules and to to get everyone talking the same language, if you like. So it was about getting people comfortable with change. I knew that obviously our industry was going through huge change. I wanted Brit to be at the forefront of that change. And therefore, we needed to sort of get our people to a place where they were comfortable with it. Obviously, you've had a very long career during you know the more traditional time during which Brit was was founded, where you know perhaps the innovation was in capital structures and that kind of thing, but not in the actual underwriting itself, where the underwriting had been done as continued to be done in exactly the same way it had been done since Cuthbert Heath's day. So, what was your own personal journey of that? It has to start with you deciding that we need to change the way that Brit is organised because it's not innovative enough. Well, certainly it started with with effectively my own education, if you like, in in terms of. We actually had away days. We had Fair Ventures, which is Fairfax's innovation lab, come and talk to our exec. It was really about learning the language of innovation. And I suppose the journey started was that in my day, I was a property underwriter. You sort of see algorithmic trading in other industries. And I always believed that there was nothing that couldn't be done today by an algorithm better than our underwriting had been or my underwriting had been in the past. Now, people might not say that's a surprise, but that's really what where I started was that you see it in other industries. This is something that's been around for two decades elsewhere. I really thought, I suppose to a certain extent, it's led by fear that someone else in our industry would bring in a major tech partner and build something that was going to uh, revolutionize or um, disrupt our industry. And I thought, well, why can't that be Brett, basically? To be fair, you know, fear and greed are the two main motivators behind nearly everything that everybody does. So it's interesting you mentioned about Fairfax, obviously, the newer ownership of Brit. Obviously, it's been through different ownerships. So was it really, could you attribute it to Fairfax? Is that the point where you think, goodness, it's being a Fairfax company that has really made me think about this? Well, I think under, obviously, prior to Fairfax, we were owned by PE. That clearly drums into you the financial rigor. I would like to say that we've sort of taken the best of that model and kept the financial rigor around how we operate the business. But what Fairfax allows, they look over the long term in terms of returns. Clearly, they they want quarterly, clearly look to the quarter as well. But Prem Watson, the president and founder of Fairfax, talks a lot about building value over the long term. 
So actually it allowed us to start to think slightly differently. We wouldn't have been able to do our cloud migration over a three-year period. We wouldn't have been able to have invested in a brand new business like Key. And, and so Fairfax has allowed us to do that. And I think that's the true value of looking to the long-term rather than just to your quarterly numbers. Yes, so certainly as journalists, we, we, we find it harder to, to scrutinise your quarterly numbers in the way that we would have done when you were on the London Stock Exchange, Matthew. Well, they wouldn't have been quarterly, but, you know, every half. Yeah. So digital, wholly digital, is that really, that that is that is the Brit of the future. So how do your underwriters feel about this? Do, you, do they feel that they're, they're going to be turned into algorithms or is this always going to create more work for them in one way or another? No, I mean, the, again, the way I look upon it is I don't have a duty of care to the thousands of underwriters in Lloyd's. I have a duty of care to the 250 underwriters that we have within Brit. And my belief is that clearly you are going to need, I mean, you need human intellect to program algorithms and the best of both worlds and the mantra that, that is in digital lexicon is about the best of tech with human. And I think that's absolutely what I want to see. We're never going to replace our underwriters with algorithms. We're very clear with that, with all of our underwriters, not just because it suits the narrative, but because it's the truth. I think that by making Brit as digital as possible and making ourselves as efficient as possible, we'll actually make Brit more attractive as a place for people to want to work. And it will make make us more competitive in the global industry. The real driver behind this was that if you look at Lloyd's expense ratio, it's 40%. And I mean, no other industry works with those sort of margins. And the first CEO I ever worked for, which was David Coleridge, I remember him standing up in a, in a town hall and saying the expense ratio is 40% in Lloyd's and it is unsustainable. Well, here we are 33 years later and it's still 40%. All we have ever done is underwriters blame brokers and blame the commission costs. We all look to Lloyd's and blame Lloyd's for Lloyd's costs. Well, I took the view that blaming everyone else has not made any difference for 33 years. Why don't we actually look at ourselves and look at the expense ratio that we have? And if we can build a model that is significantly cheaper, the model we currently have today, then clearly we will be more competitive. I mean, the global insurance industry is running at around 30, and many of our peers will be lower than that at 25. So running at 40, you've automatically obviously got one arm behind your back as Lloyd's, and that can change. We don't need to do the same thing over and over, expecting a different outcome. In every other industry, people target market share as a measure of success. But for very sound reasons, in insurance, talk of market share is a no-no. But could we target something else? What about market presence? Because isn't performing well in the insurance world and outperforming on profitability really down to your market presence? After all, you can't place risks for clients you haven't met, and you can't underwrite business you haven't been shown. M&A and innovation do drive market presence, but it can also be steadily achieved at a lower cost through brand building. Brand building works in part by activating a bias we all have called the availability heuristic. It simply means that when our brains are searching for an answer, say which broker or insurer to contact, the answer that comes most readily to mind is deemed to be the right one. In short, the greater your brand awareness, the more opportunities you'll see. 
It's a straightforward mechanism the team at Free Partners use. Free Partners is a brand and communications agency specialising in the insurance sector. So if you're thinking you'd like to see more opportunities, perhaps Free Partners will come to mind. Check out their three-step standout Grow Strong plan at freepartners.com. Really, is your philosophy, therefore, to digitise everything you can and then the humans come in for the bits that you really can't where you're adding the extra value at the top? And is it about, and in terms of we look at expense, is the way to get through the expense through productivity for getting the same underwriter who maybe used to write a 10 million to be able to write a $20 million book with the same amount of work? Exactly. I, I think it's about underwriters articulating what their risk appetite truly is. I mean, when you ask an underwriter what they do, they'll tell you a long list of what they don't write, things they don't do. We're not very good at actually articulating what we do do and what we do well and what our risk appetite is. We've drummed again. We've taken all of our underwriters through different sales courses and to be able to articulate what we what our risk appetite actually is to stop the sort of wastage of wheel spinning of seeing things that we wouldn't be interested in in the first place. And then, as you say, digitizing the pieces that we can will make make ourselves much more productive. That is exactly the model that we want to uh, produce. And and frankly, if we have that expense saving, then some of that is going to go back, obviously, to the client. Some of that, hopefully, will come in our own margin. But we need to get to a place where we're globally competitive. So do you think before all these reforms, what sort of percentage of business were you declining and, and therefore it's just dead time, wasting time of everybody, the, bro- the highly paid broker and highly paid underwriter and sitting in expensive office, declining business is obviously not efficient. How much of that have you been able to get rid of now that you're starting this new journey? As a leader and someone that a company that leads about 60% of what we do and we're second lead on a further 20% of what we do, you're clearly... In the quote phase, there's an awful lot of business you're not going to get a firm order on. So, I mean, it's something in the region of 50% of business will never be never be bound. And so there's a huge amount of inefficiency. And if you think about every class of business is different, but if you think about it from property or terror or whatever, there's all the modeling that goes into that as well. So there's days and days and days of wasted work that, that can be eliminated if we get this right. And um, we've already, as I say, we've started on that journey. We've eliminated a fair proportion of it by articulating a clearer appetite. But the further digitization of the main business will assist on that. And we've only just begun that journey as well. So we're not anywhere close to a fully digital brick. I don't want to give people that impression that we're we're weeks away, we're years away from that. But So it's key, which you've launched a great fanfare and... Uh, certainly great success from you know media perspective making a lot of it's made a huge amount of um you know publicity and i i you know in my interviews with all of your peers i mentioned key uh, so hopefully you'll be pleased with that because i you that's become the reference point that i'm saying look there's key what are you doing uh, what do you think of it would you want to do something similar and most of them say yes by the way so it's key there to, you've got your 60 that you lead 60 that you your second lead is key for the other 20 for where you'll just follow capacity so we have very stretch targets for key. I genuinely think if you look at the amount of follow business in Lloyd's, it's got to be 25 billion plus of business in the uh, in the follow model. Uh, and so, I mean, the way we look upon that, why can we not have a 10% share of all follow business in, in the Lloyd's market? So it doesn't just have to be restricted to the 20% that, that Brit writes today. 
as, as follow, because we're following other syndicates, which we're calling nominated leads in the market, there's no reason it can't be much bigger than that. So we've had, Key was the third largest tech startup in the UK in 2020. So in terms of, of the scale of the ambition, it's huge. We obviously worked with world-class partners to build it. If we were going to do it, again, we wanted it to be of quality. And I genuinely believe that you couldn't do that within Brit, if you like. If you try and do that within your existing infrastructure, you're always going to struggle to an extent to get the traction in that because there's too many competing priorities. So we tried to leave the existing business alone to do its thing and effectively created from the ground up a sort of, I mean, our mantra key is risk simplified. So we had to suspend, if you like, a lot of the a lot of the tendencies or, or urges of an underwriter to try and overcomplicate everything and try and make it an experience that was unlike anything else that they see in Lloyd's. I mean, from a staff survey that we did, I think it's probably four or five years ago now, one of our young underwriting assistants said, they have a digital home life and an analog work life. And that really resonated with me in terms of clearly, I mean, the, the rise of social media, online shopping, everything you do at home, your fridge can talk to you. I mean, order food, et cetera. You can turn your lights on from your phone and then you get into Lloyd's and then it's suddenly a very different world. And so building key, it was like really going back to square one of saying, okay, how would you want to build this? Because I mean, again, everyone says on the digital journey, if you were going to get there, you wouldn't start from here. And so we sort of pretended we didn't have Brit. How would you want to build it from the ground up? And that's what we set about doing. But it was about getting world-class partners to help us do that. I mean, clearly, we weren't arrogant enough to think that we had the brain trust that was going to be able to do that on our own. So taking people like UCL, who literally are the world's preeminent builder of algorithms for uh, financial trading, getting Google Cloud on board. From their perspective, I mean, it was fantastic. A lot of people and commentators have said, well, all Brit have done is build a bit of tech and stick it on Google's cloud. That wasn't the case at all. We took, this was a collaboration with the Google Cloud engineers to actually work with a third party to build a front-end platform, web-based platform, work with UCL, as I say, on the algorithm, marry the two together, and then link them to our back office systems. So all the way along, we've tried to look for the best of the best in how we build the thing. And then obviously, the final piece of that was through, uh, obviously, the fundraising that we did through the summer and then culminating in us getting Blackstone on board for the majority of the investment. Again, they had never invested in Lloyd's before, so clearly they believed in uh, in what we were doing. How's it going? How's production? And how is it for the brokers in terms of, is this all sort of automatic? I mean, the submissions, how are they, how are they able to do them? So... Um, firstly, the feedback has been phenomenal. I mean, we genuinely didn't know how feedback was going to go. We thought we had something that was quite special, but at the end of the day, where the rubber hits the road is is clearly the, the main point you're going to find out. So literally in January, I didn't know whether we were going to buy in 5 million or 50 million. I had, we really didn't know. But the brokers have really given us strong feedback about how the platform works. Essentially, you go into web-based platforms, so it's key-insurance.com. 
you go into that website and then a broker has a log on to log onto the system. To get a quote where Brit is already on that risk, you literally type in this short or UMR, unique market reference, and you get a quote in under five seconds. So we have already iterated the front end platform three times since launch. And obviously that was only January, but we effectively work in in an agile way of putting iterations out there. We've listened to the brokers and what they want. So version two, which is launched in uh, early May, will again allow them to requote different layers and structures and things like that in record time as well. But the moment when we launched it, it was a 50-second turnaround time for a follow risk, now under five seconds. In fact, I demoed it to the Council of Lloyds the other day, and they actually came back with an answer in less than a second. And what it's doing in that time is it's actually going and doing know your client checks and all the compliance checks from different systems. It's going off to our back office systems to get the data, 10 years of history of each risk and assimilating that. It's sending it off to the algorithm to work out what line size key is going to write. It returns the answer and sends an email to the broker with the quote, with all the subjectivities, all within the space of a second. It is quite a change to the current process that goes on in Lloyd's. Then can they build some sort of API so they can have keys sitting there almost automatically so you already know what key is going to be doing? Yeah, and, and that's actually exactly the next phase of development is that we're already working on integration to brokers right now, the first of which will launch in April. And we don't want key to be thought of as the market of last choice. We want it to be thought of as the market of first choice. So essentially, once you have the leader leader's line down, it's so simple to get a line from key. The argument would be, why not? So we want to get to that point where, and essentially the front end platform almost becomes redundant at some stage because you have the API from the broker platform. So as they're keying in a, a new risk or a renewal in their own system, sends the data to key and it returns the answer straight to them. And we are literally only a month away from having that with one of our major broker partners. Well, in terms of this being the future, sort of being able to, people able to see almost once they've got a lead line down, a broker be able to almost be able to construct the 100% placement of that order um, straight away. What do you think that should do to that leader's relationship? Should we be rewarding that leader for for key following, you know, basic their benchmarking itself on that other underwriting that's happening that might be more expensive and less algorithmic and more human? What do you say to people who, who say, you know, we should be, you know, uh, having leaders fees, all that kind of thing? I mean, Lloyds and the LMA have obviously had various programs in place to to look at this. And and obviously having key, it's something that I've I've been asked many times since we've since we've launched or since we announced it last May. My view of leaders' fees are that I really believe that market forces should lead to the answer to that. And that might sound like a bit of a cop-out, but ultimately what key is doing is actually underwriting the risk, right? We comply with every single Lloyd's minimum standard. There's not one that we have an exemption for. So we are underwriting the risk. We have all the data. We are underwriting the risk. We are doing all the compliance checks, as I said earlier. So there's not one stage that a lead underwriter is doing that key is not already doing. So what I see leaders fees doing is just shifting cost around the market. And it's not solving the problem of the 40%. We just shift money around between us and have 
tons of contracts, service level agreements between syndicates on, if you lead, what are you going to do for me? Are you going to provide me with the cleaned aggregate data? Are you going to provide me with all of the credit control, things like that? What is the things that a leader are going to perform on a follower's behalf? Again, how we built key is rather than rely on anyone else to do anything for us, we built key to do the lot. My view is, Lloyd's, is that not got a problem with how many followers there are. We actually have a problem with how many leaders we have. And part of, of what people were looking at in this lead follow relationship was saying, well, everyone will want to be a follower. Well, that is it's just not the case today. My, my experience of that is everyone wants to be a leader and a lot of people can't see the value in being a follower. Well, because we've built a model that I hope people can see value in, I don't see why just having built a better mousetrap that we should attract other people's costs. And so that's how I think about it. But I would also say, because people say, well, yeah, of course, you've got a vested interest because of key. Well, actually, key currently is obviously a startup and has a small amount of premium. Brit, as the main syndicate and a leader, has 2.7 billion of premium, where we're leading 60% of that business. Brit would be a massive net benefactor of leaders' fees if they were introduced. But I just don't believe that that is the right answer for our market. Is it because it removes the incentive to reform your own cost base? Exactly. With Key, how long do you think we could see the real futuristic vision of an algorithmic underwriter that leads and quotes its own business? Personally, I think we're five to 10 years away from that. I do think that sort of algorithmic trading as a general concept in Lloyd's will sort of be omnipresent in in five years. But actually taking it to that next level of, of leading is an enormous challenge. I mean, an algorithm can't currently a slip, can't read the contract. Obviously, we're moving to things like the IMRC, so the first stages of having digital contracts. But we're not there yet, and we're going to be several years away from that in my mind where, I mean, we might only be a, a year away from having a IMRC, but actually the ability to uh, interpret that through an algorithm, I think, is, is some way off. So um, I'm not overly optimistic we'll have leading algorithmic syndicates anytime soon. And just for lay people, IMRC? Uh, it's the market reform contract in digital format is the best way to describe it. Good, I'll have to look up what the words are. I'll put it in the notes. Actually, well, let's talk about Blueprint 2, actually, at Lloyd's. Obviously, you're, you're a very big part of you know, Lloyd's reforming itself without any help from the centre. And you've already used the phrase, actually, rubber hitting the road. That was uh, John Neal's catchphrase that he, he coined here on the, on the voice of insurance in, in the last year. And um, how is it, how's it going, do you think? Obviously, we had um, you know, Blueprint 1 and, well, all the, the future at Lloyd's document was a big smorgasbord, a, a fantastic sort of great menu of really of lots of things we could do. And then Blueprint 2 is really, here are the three things, or you know, here are a small number of things that we've definitely chosen, we're definitely going to do, and we're going to implement them. So do you think enough rubber's hitting the road fast enough at the moment? Firstly, I would compliment Lloyds on what they're trying to do and what the ambition is. I mean, as you've put it, Blueprint 1 was was just enormously ambitious and um, was was painting the vision, I think, for everybody of what, what could happen in the future. But Blueprint 2 clearly more universally welcomed, if you like, in terms of its simplicity, and it was more grounded vision. And so from that perspective, much more achievable. But it's still a project on a 
on a scale that the Lloyds market has never had to go through before or never embarked upon. So I know we all want instant gratification and me more than anyone, but I do think we need some patience here. I think the, I mean, there are numerous proper deliverables through 2021. And clearly in terms of, I sit on the technology and transformation committee of Lloyd's. So I see it firsthand, what is being delivered when and how. All I would say is that the whole program feels very, very different to anything that Lloyd's has done before. They're very different skill sets of the people managing and operating it. The governance process is way more transparent than we would have seen in the past. They're working in an agile way. I mean, everything about it is right, but they have a lot of key dependencies and it's an enormous project to work. I mean, I know how difficult it was delivering key, if you like, just in in splendid isolation, but they're trying to keep 90 plus syndicates happy, obviously numerous brokers happy trying to do it not just on behalf of Lloyd's, but try and do it on behalf of the London market. There's so many people that they're trying to communicate with through this process. Frankly, I think they're doing a phenomenal job, but we're going to need patience. I mean, I, the way I think about this is people look at look at it in terms of the cost saving and, and why wouldn't you, right? Everyone wants to know how much this is going to save me in back office costs and and they want to know the exact detail about how it's going to impact them. I really think that misses the point in terms of what this can do for our market. And if you look at seven of the top 10 businesses by valuation globally are platform businesses. And in a way, on digital platform businesses, in a way, Lloyd's was one of the first ever platform businesses. If you think about it as a marketplace that was established 334 years ago, it was a platform. It's just, again, it's an, an analog platform rather than a digital one. And if we get this right and actually create fully digital Lloyd's, not only will it be the only digital insurance marketplace for complex risk, but I, I really think it creates significant value for all of the businesses operating in Lloyd's. So valuations of managing agencies in Lloyd's anywhere from, say, one times through to two, two and a half times, whatever, two, two and a half times book. Well, as a fully digital, capable managing agency, why wouldn't the multiple of that be aligned to other digital businesses? And so I think we're sort of missing the, okay, costs. We look at cost, clearly, and we then look at savings. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's clearly a good financial discipline. But I think it misses the main point about what it will do for the market as a whole, and then how we can transform the way of business. You've still got faith. It's just going to take a long time because it's incredibly complex. Exactly. I mean, I, I think we have to maintain the faith, not just because I think it would be an enormous missed generational opportunity. I mean, if we think about the number of people that have tried to do this before John Neal and it not work out for them, it's an incredibly brave thing, I think, for any CEO of Lloyd's to say, okay, this is the scale of the journey we're going to go on and, and embark upon it. And I think it's incumbent on all of us, frankly, to get behind it because it is absolutely worth it if we can get this right. And so I would rather than throw rocks, actually get in amongst it and actually try and help them deliver it. And that's the attitude we had actually from Blueprint One. Nearly half of our exec were actually involved in different work streams, actually helping Lloyd's, I know, many, many, many people 
input into Blueprint One, but we were very vocal and very active in doing that because we believed in it so much. Obviously, the most important part of any digital reform is that core building block of, of the data and the data record. And we've had the first part, you know, this part of uh, Blueprint 2 coming out now, uh, just very recently, was the launch of the, the core data record or the consultation on the core data record. You think they've got that right? Because obviously, if you build on on the wrong type of data, the wrong sort of digital sand, then your house falls down. But if you build, build on the, the digital rock, then you can build a skyscraper on it. Is this fundamental building block, do you think they've got that right? Yes. I mean, I, look, the core data record to me is the sort of min, is a stepping stone. It's a sort of, it's the minimum amount of data that's required for the end-to-end journey between bind and then the rest of the sort of insurance lifecycle through to claims. So in terms of what it encompasses and, and the data strategy and architecture behind that, I think it's absolutely correct. What it isn't, though, is the full end-to-end journey that, say, a broker or a managing agency goes through. And so I think that there's enormous opportunity for any company in the market or external to the market to actually get involved in, in the data journey, if you like. As I say, Lloyd's is only taking it from bind through to the finality of the processing. So that is the middle and back office. Front office piece, whether that's for brokers or whether that's for underwriters, is not addressed in that. And that can be anything from underwriting data to pricing data, aggregation data. There's all sorts of other data that frankly goes into the whole life cycle that Lloyds aren't tackling. And I don't blame them for that. They can't boil the, that would be boiling the ocean. So they've taken a chunk of that and getting that right. And I think it opens up opportunity for the rest of us to look at how we process the rest of it, if you like. So that, that core data record is sort of based around accord standards, which are international insurance data standards that were already there. Do you think that that's the right way to go and not trying to reinvent the wheel? Absolutely. I think it's complex enough when you're trying to put metadata together and, and the data process flow and architecture to start creating your own your own sort of data dictionary, if you like. This will be obviously grounded in accord where I think obviously everyone recognizes that standard. With Key, if it goes really, really well, you've got this, you're currently 60 lead, um, 20% second lead, and 20% follow. Do you think at some point, if Key is doing so well, will you sort of ban manual following? Your manu- your, you know, your human underwriter is putting down manual lines on follow business and say, no, that should all be done by Key. Oh, it's a great question and one that we have touched upon internally. I, I don't actually have an answer for you, and I'm not. I'm not trying to be evasive. It's one that we're still uh, thinking our way through. I don't necessarily see why we would stop following in the main syndicate. I think that the way we're currently thinking about it is that they're independent and that they should do independent things, and that there's no reason that Brit shouldn't follow as well. On Blueprint Two. You talk about everyone, of course, obsessed about um, cost savings, and quite rightly so, particularly when you're running a 40% expense ratio. What is the size of that prize? You know, would it be to get down to 25? You mentioned sort of um, jealously talking of other peers that were doing that. I think 25 is a is a big stretch. Do I think we can get to 30? Yes. I, I mean, if you look at if you look at the Lloyd's piece alone, I think you can probably get two or three points out of that. If every piece of business, I mean, when key is at scale, if every piece of business was done that way, then our, by our calculation about the amount of follow business in the market, it would be about another four points uh, of combined ratio. So I think between what Lloyd's are doing, 
the type of thing that Key is doing. And it won't end there. There will obviously be other things that, um, and certainly what the brokers are doing themselves, I think we can get to a 30 as a sustainable number. And, and on that front, with the brokers, presumably, if, if they literally do have an API and they have a button saying press key and four seconds later, five seconds later, as you said, they get the terms for key and they can bind it straight away. Presumably, they're happier to work on a slightly lower commission for that because they, can, they can't argue that they've had to do a very tough broke. Look, we haven't tackled that and, and deliberately we've stayed away from it. And my, my view of that, again, is if someone has something to give in the value chain, again, the market will, will work that out. I mean, really, you're only going to start to erode acquisition costs if the value chain, if someone in the value chain no longer becomes relevant. And that's clearly something we've tried to avoid in this whole thing. We have not changed the commission structures for business going through key. My view of that is that when data and digital really starts flowing, then the market again will work out who is of value in that process and they'll be rewarded appropriately. And you just leave it to competition among the brokers to, they may work out that perhaps discounting some of that commission to the client is a good idea. Absolutely. And and honestly, I've, we've had in, in our discussions, we've had the full gamut between, well, if we're putting business through key, we want additional commission through to, through to exactly as you've described. Actually, this makes us more efficient and we can give some of our commission back to the client. So we have had every discussion you can imagine that everyone's at a different position, if you like, in their journey. So I'm not going to throw rocks again at, at different companies. There are brokers that are, I mean, through this whole process, it's been a real eye-opener as to how far forward some brokers are and how far back other brokers are. That's not going to be a surprise to anyone, I don't think. Absolutely, but that brought a very big smile to my face, the, the idea that you'd get extra brokerage for, for doing business with Key. I thought that was rather wonderful. Broker creativity is, is, the, is the lifeblood of market, uh, Matthew, I'm sure you're aware. I want to change the subject a bit because um, it's, it's, I think it's very pertinent to what you've been doing with Brit, actually. You've been really talking about a fundamental culture change at Brit, about changing the way that Brit is and the way it's structured so that it can be more innovative and do things like automatic underwriting. About six years ago, there was the first dive-in festival was, um, started by Inga Beale, obviously the first female CEO of Lloyd's. And we've had a huge amount of talk about uh, diversity and inclusion uh, within the Lloyds market and obviously about behaviour and cultural change and everything else. What's your rate card on the progress that we've had in that almost six-year period? I mean, I think you can sum it up clearly in um, must try harder is probably the, the simple answer to that. I mean, I think, I mean, I absolutely applaud. I mean, that that statement does not take anything away from the amazing efforts that are going on in the market from what Lloyds are doing through what the LMG are doing, the CII are doing. I mean, there's there's so much work from so many different either associations or companies. I don't want to take anything away from that. But you can see it clearly from the Lloyds Cultural Survey. I think that was a good thing to have done two years ago to effectively set the baseline. And I think it was great that we had the dive-in festivals and we started the journey and the discussions but actually, it was the cultural survey that really gave us the answer about how far we've progressed or otherwise. Clearly, there has been progress. I mean, the average uh, average positive score in the second survey was up 8%. So progress has been made, but we need to go further. And I think if, for me, again, it's about being part of the discussion and part of the debate. There's too many people that are happy to remain silent 
And to me, DNI isn't a spectator sport. It's something that you've got to be actively engaged with and engage your organization with. You spend most, well, when we were able to go to an office, we were spending most of our waking hours at work. And therefore, if you think about coming to work, clearly it's a contract for you do work, I pay you, but it has to be a social contract as well in my mind. So that means providing something which is very different from just turning up to work and going home again. There's got to be an emotional attachment to where you work. And I think you get that through inclusion, through treating people fairly and everything around culture. So we absolutely hold culture very, very dear at Brit. A lot of people, when they join us, they can't necessarily put their finger on it, but they say it's a very different place than anywhere they've been before. And DNI is a is a major part of that. So number of initiatives that we've launched in line, if you like, with the dive in when that started. Uh, we started with something called Celebrate the Difference, which is really a whole week of IND and health and well-being. And it's been fantastic for people at Brit to hear about different experiences, obviously some of which they're going to resonate with. Not everyone's going to resonate with every with every topic, but the feedback has been phenomenal because to me, what that just says is that Brit wants to welcome everybody and we treat everybody exactly the same. To me, as a, as a white middle-class male, people have said to me, so, well, why do you have a voice, if you like, or how do you have a voice given that you've not got the lived experiences? To me, that's exactly why we do need to engage and why white class men, who most of whom are running either insurance businesses or broking businesses in our marketplace, that it's incumbent on us to learn and listen. And that's really what the next phase of what we've done at Brit is in setting up something called the People Forum. So the People Forum actually engages with all of our staff, people. We pick a topic, if you like, for the quarter, and that topic is then advertised. Those people that are interested in it can become part of the forum for that quarter. We start that quarter with a speech from somebody generally externally on that topic, someone that does have a lived experience of it. And we've, as I say, we've had some phenomenal speakers and the feedback has been incredible where people have really resonated with the issues that that person has had and has then been able to talk about it openly. It was about hearing people's stories and then not judging, but listening and understanding what issues people have encountered either in their private lives or in their lives of working in the London market. And then it's about action. We've seen some um, compulsory targets on gender diversity within the Lloyd Corporation of Lloyds itself. And there are noises sort of rumbling from particularly from UK regulators on this kind of thing. Do you think if we don't act quick enough, do you think we're running the risk of regulators imposing those sorts of targets on us? Yeah, in a way, I think it's um, I think it's an inevitability. I don't think left to its own devices. So there's great progress happening in, but it's it's happening way too slow. I mean, you see it from the data on uh, the gender pay gap, Again, moving in the right direction, but it's sort of glacial in its um, in its effect. What gets measured gets done, if you like. And um, so, having targets, whilst I'm not naturally inclined to want them or have them or set them internally within Brit, I think ultimately it's probably inevitability. So, do you think we're likely to get them from FCA PRA anyway? 
Well, we may even get them from Lloyd's. I mean, I don't know that Lloyd's has any intention of doing that, but as a quasi-regulator, that's clearly within their gift to do as well. So do you think you should um, jump the gun on them and maybe get over your own disinclination for, for targets and, and, and have a go and do something? Well, what I'd like to think is that we're doing enough things differently that we'll get there without the targets. I mean, we, we have no one telling us, if you like, at the moment, what we should and shouldn't be doing. And we're doing a huge amount of activity. And I think we are trying to fish ponds, if you like, in terms of recruitment. We are already doing CVs that are blind, if you like, in terms of taking the names off of CVs. And so we're, we're trying to implement different policies in the company that will lead to that diversity. But I suppose the main point is that diversity without the inclusion piece right, is very short-lived. I mean, we've actually seen some movement on diversity, and then you see people again leaving the London market because they didn't feel included. A lot of what we've tried to do, again, within Brit, is work on, I mean, we don't call it DNI, we call it IND, because actually, if you've got an inclusive environment, it will become a diverse one. But if you start with diversity and you're not inclusive, it will rapidly unravel. Well, good luck with getting there because you know, it doesn't really matter how we get there. It's just get there your way or, or another way. It doesn't really matter. But Matthew, I really thank you so much for lifting the bonnet and lifting the hood on all your thinking here, which is really, really interesting. It is, it is very progressive and it's not a standard way of thinking about things. So I wish you all success with all these endeavours that you've got uh, running concurrently at Brit. And good luck in this, in this harder market. Thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure and I very much enjoyed it. So uh, thank you for having me on. Thanks so much, Matthew. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>